Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. One of the challenges of traveling is managing your money. If you're tired of getting crushed by bank fees and exchange rates, you need to check out wise.com. I have been a customer for over 10 years. This is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. It's been essential for me first as a traveler, then later as a digital nomad and an expat living abroad, running a business from around the world. You get one account, which allows you to send, spend, and convert money internationally, all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. You can join 16 million customers, learn how the Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to Wise for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at nissanusa.com. Why do we do things the way we do them? Why don't we do them a different way? And I think that's a very, um, both hopefully self-reflective uh, skill that's, that's useful, but also it's a, it's a good one for society, I think, because it, it forces you to ask questions about maybe we could imagine doing things differently. A big part of policy is imagination. It's can we imagine a future that's different than the one that we have? And then how do we figure out how to build that future? That is Ganesh Sitaraman, who is today's guest. He is a doctor of law from Harvard and currently professor of law at Vanderbilt University Law School, a policy expert who teaches and writes about constitutional law, the regulatory state, economic policy, democracy, and foreign affairs. What is he doing on this show? You might be wondering. Well, as a traveler, you're more likely than not to be someone who's going to spend some serious time on airplanes and in airports, and you're probably doing that already, and you may have noticed Some things need to change. Ganesh has written a book called Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. He's on a mission to improve the airline industry for travelers. And in this book, he lays out a plan for how leaders could choose to fix flying in order to serve more people more efficiently with fewer federal bailouts and headaches. He breaks it all down in this episode. Among other things, we discuss the phase of the industry we are in and where it's going, why the current system's overall higher prices, offering less routes due to less competition is no longer working, the surprising role airports play in the airline system, who it hurts and why, why the industry in its present state is bad for geographic equality and economic growth, and of course, what we need to do to change and how to fix it. Much more on top of that coming in this fascinating episode. And we're going to get into it right now. So buckle up, strap in. Thanks for being here. And welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey there, it's Jason with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. What a show we have for you today. It's not every day I get to talk to a policy expert, and Ganesh is a fascinating guy. He has also... Ben, Elizabeth Warren's longtime advisor, he actually worked on her presidential campaign. And so we get to get a behind the scenes look on what it's like to work 
on a presidential campaign in the U.S. That was part of this conversation. He also shares some advice getting other people to consider your point of view, which is a big thing you have to do as somebody who's trying to uh, facilitate policy reform. You have to get people to to see things in a different way. And how uh, perhaps some of his roots and his travels growing up influences current work today. So all of that, and of course, a big focus on why flying is miserable and how to fix it. At least that's the uh, provocative title of Ganesha's book. And we get into the nuts and bolts on what that looks like. And I love that there are people out here like Ganesh working on improving some of these systems. You kind of Sometimes in the present day, look at a system like the airline industry right now and just think, well, it's just going to be like this. It's like this. It's going to stay like this forever. But no, we can actually take a step back and figure out how to fix these things and improve them. And historically, if we, we look back, we see, of course, it's obvious that many things have been fixed and improved over time. And it's cool to get a real-time look at something that's not necessarily working to the degree it could be anymore. Uh, through the eyes of a policy expert, and start to dissect that question or unpack some of the problems and look at some of the potential solutions. And I'm excited for travelers and for people that are working in this industry that there are some changes afoot and some things being worked on. And it warms my heart to know that Ganesh and there are others out there working on, on doing that. So get ready to get excited about policy reform today. I know that might not be something you thought about getting jazzed about, but you're going to be after listening to this episode. Stick around on the back end. I'm going to tie this one together with a question you hear during this interview that you can also ask of yourself. I think it's a powerful one. Stick around for that, and I'll leave you with a quote at the end. For now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Ganesh, and I'll see you on the other side, my friend. Cheers. Ganesh Sitaraman, welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. Yes, coming from Nashville. Are you a Are you a music fan? You know, I, I am. I I can't say that I always was, but since living here, you really become one. It's there's just so much extraordinary music in this town. Absolutely. What is your What do you like to do when you're not working? Well, you know, I uh, in town love going out to hike. We've got some great state and local parks around here. Um, and do go to music sometimes around. We've just got really great venues of, of all different types, honestly. Um, I'm a huge TV fan, so I watch a ridiculous amount of television. Kind of unreasonable <laughs> for somebody uh, who is also probably, um, you know, writes a lot of books. But, but that's one of, my, one of my favorite things to do. And then, you know, I love traveling um, and, you know, part of the reason, uh, great to talk with you today. I'm excited about this. The, your new book, of course, Why Flying is Miserable and how to fix it. There's a lot to unpack here, man. Yeah, I wanted to ask you first about just growing up. I've gotten to speak with uh, a lot of people on the show who 
have been the child of immigrant parents who have gone to another country to, I'm going to say, quote unquote, get a better life or whatever. I'm not sure what your case was, but I've talked to uh, people in those situations and they have expressed the fact that it, it can be difficult living in between two cultures and some of those values and ideas might be different when you're you know, coming from another country and then you're moving to a new country. And yeah, I'm just wondering about that upbringing for you. Was that something you experienced or yeah, what was your childhood experience with that? Well, you know, I think for most people and, and maybe, maybe not for most people, but certainly for me, um, there was a mix of both really great things and obviously some, some challenges too, right? You, you have this sense that uh, you are trying to fit in and you need to, you know, be similar to others, especially when you're a kid, of course, that, that's a kind of very natural thing. Um, but at the same time, there's something really special about having access to this kind of different world of experience and understanding and, and uh, even little things like food and culture, where you may be exposed to different things than, than others around you. And I think that, at least for me, um, helped you know, instill a kind of curiosity in the world and a recognition that there's lots of different ways to do things and lots of different kinds of people with different approaches. And uh, when you can see outside of one approach, it really lets you creatively engage with, with a lot of other things that you might not have thought about before or, or wanted to. Can you expand a bit on that last point? I'm just curious if you have a, like a personal example. You know, I, I grew up uh, largely in Minnesota and Georgia um, in areas that, you know, I, I wouldn't say were probably the most uh, diverse in the country um, in terms of lots of different people of, of different backgrounds in the 80s and, and, and 90s. And ha- having a sense that, you know, there was something that there were lots of different approaches, different cultures out there, um, I, I think, at least for me, allowed me to ask questions uh, about, well, why do we do things the way we do uh, on both sides? And, um, and, and that I think, you know, really as kind of a life skill is something that you're, you're constantly kind of wondering, well, why do we do things the way we do them? Why don't we do them a different way? And I think that's a very, um, both hopefully self-reflective, uh, skill that's, that's useful, but also it's a, it's a good one for society, I think, because it, it forces you to ask questions about maybe we could imagine doing things differently. Yeah. I mean, that's essentially what you do in policy. From a meta viewpoint, you're looking at how we do things and what type of systemic political changes can we make to make a new version of that <laughs> thing, yeah, essentially. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> I, I think a big part of policy is imagination. It's, can we imagine a future that's different than the one that we have? And then how do we figure out how to build that future? But there's got to be some resource for the imagination, right? We could read fantasy novels, or you could travel somewhere else and see that things have been done differently, or you could look backwards to the past, and you know the past is a different country, they say, um, and and they do things differently there. And so you know you have some resources for that, and I think for for policymakers who think about the world um, in any area, really, it doesn't matter what what topic of policy, you know, it, it's really a creative endeavor of of imagination at. at the first in the first instance have you connected those dots back with what you described as a some of the creative insights you described during your childhood and what you do now you know i, I don't know if i've so squarely uh, uh 
linked those two before the, this conversation specifically, but I think I've always understood in part that, you know, having exposure to lots of different things was part of what helps me think creatively in politics is just reading widely, traveling widely, uh, thinking broadly about lots of different uh, ways to solve problems and and seeing them from different perspectives uh, is I think a, a really key key feature. And, and you know, th- I think in part that probably came from upbringing. Do you have siblings? Uh, I have a younger sister. Do you guys live near each other? Uh, not quite. Um, she's uh, uh, she's a doctor. She lives in Chicago, so we're we're uh, not too far. Cool. Why did you spend your time writing a book long policy argument to reform the airline industry? <laughs> why Why does this matter to you personally? Well, you know, I like a lot of people. Um, I'm a, I'm a flyer. You know, I fly a lot. I travel a lot. So it's a thing that I experience all the time um, and have a lot of uh, engagement with. And, you know, I think if any, uh, you know, anyone out there who flies, you probably discuss flying. You discuss your delays and your cancellations and whether you got You're kind of in it together at the airport, right? Like you look around, you can make eye contact with your fellow passengers. Like, no matter how varying your views are, you might just have a moment where you're like, yeah, this is, we're in this together. You know? Yeah. You have this kind of shared, there's a shared sense of, you know, endeavor together on, in these things, especially in the moments of misery, you know, when you're, yeah. when you're delayed by six hours or canceled, uh, and, and you've got to get rebooked through a different city or something that that's, there's like a real camaraderie that builds in those moments. And, you know, I, I thought, for for flyers like me and for you know a lot of other people like uh, that I know this is something that we all spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about um and there isn't really I hadn't I wasn't really aware of a good resource to explain what was going on and and what was the history of all of this what why are we where we are why is this so miserable um and and then in particular the book started um kind of oddly I, I was doing uh, research for uh, a law school textbook. I'm a law professor, and so I was doing research for a textbook on a whole body of law that, for for many generations, covered transportation and energy, uh, banking, telecommunications. You know, areas that are sort of core infrastructure or public utility-like sectors, and they had a special set of rules that govern them. And airlines were one of these industries, and and they were governed like public utilities from the 1930s to the 70s. And as I was doing the research on this on this book, um, just every day of doing the work was like this exciting revelation of new facts, interesting features of how the industry used to be run, what deregulation was about, um, and just really shocking things. And, And I realized in the process of doing that research that the key to understanding why flying is miserable, what shapes basically everything about our experience with flying is a policy choice. It's the shift that policymakers made in 1978 from the kind of public utility model to deregulation of the airlines. And and that one choice unleashed a set of dynamics that explained pretty much everything. Um, Why we're irritated about smaller seats or all the extra fees that you have to pay for food or baggage or uh, seat selection even. Um, why some cities are losing service, why there are these big fortress hubs and you have to connect through Atlanta or Dallas to get anywhere in the United States. You know, and, and unless we do something about the kind of bigger question, this, this kind of big shift that happened, you know, trying to solve all these 
individual problems separately is a little bit like putting a Band-Aid on, on the kind of real big, uh, real big issues that we have. I, I mean, you're coming at this with a ton of experience in policy. I mean, I, I do have some questions about, I mean, you've been the, the advisor for Elizabeth Warren. You're on the advisory board for the Foreign Policy for America. I mean, you have, you know, your, your degrees, your work, your, a lot of your career has been built around this. So I think it's really cool as a traveler, this is a travel podcast, that you're channeling some of that energy and creativity and intelligence into this sector and trying to find a solution. I think a good way to maybe tackle this would be to break down a bit of the problem and then we can get into some of the solution that you discussed in the book and just kind of do it like that. I had a question about the title. I know it's a bit of a provocative title. I'd say that's probably intentional because it helps to kind of catch people's attention. I'm sure you've had good experiences with with airlines. We all have. But overall, I understand the spirit of the title of the book. It has gotten pretty rough, I'd say, in some ways. You mentioned like smaller seats and and the lines. The whole The whole airport experience is just... To me, it's not as enjoyable as going... I live in Europe, so we're, we have an, a wonderful train network here. But going and getting on a, a train or even a bus in some cases, it's a problem. And you have a startling visual at the beginning of the book. You have the US flight routes for 1937 versus the US flight routes in 2023, which is just like an explosion of lines. And uh, it's just really cool how you laid it out and, and go through it. But just to, for context, before we get into some of the, the history and and why there's been such a decline, are you just looking at the airline industry in the United States? I know you're on a book because that's where you create policy and where you do your work. But would you say that flying is better in certain countries? Do you want to model other countries? What do you, What's your global take on it? Yeah, it's a great question. So in the book, I really focus on the United States. That's that's my policy expertise. It's my expertise as someone who studies uh, the history of, of public policy as well. Um, but I think there's a lot of translatable lessons. Uh, you know, the big event, as I mentioned, was deregulation in 1978. And after that, a lot of other countries deregulated um, their airlines too, and their airline systems. And so you have a kind of different systems everywhere in the world. Some countries had you know, nationalized carriers, a single airline providing service everywhere. Um, others have a highly competitive system. Um, you know, Australia, historically, before, before their deregulation, had a two-airline policy. They had one public airline and one private airline. So there's lots of different models that have existed uh, throughout history. Um, and, and I think we can learn from you know, a kind of deep dive of the American experience with deregulation to to see what happened elsewhere. But but certainly, I think you know around the world, as, as anyone who travels knows, you you have different experiences. There's better, there's worse, um, and and there's I'd, I'd say probably one of the biggest differences is just you know some countries have one big airline and that's it, and they don't have all the kind of uh, proliferation of, of of lots of airlines in a competitive marketplace, um, and others have a, a mode of regulation among that. Uh, among those airlines that is greater than, than what we have now in the United States. So, so there's a real diversity out there. Um, and like you said, you know, you, you get, there are, of course, some good experiences, but, but part of the you know, point of the book and it, it is to get us to zoom out a little bit and to think both about our individual experiences with flying, but also the kind of structural changes in the industry that have made the experience tougher. You know, you mentioned rail and buses. It, you know, in Europe, you can take rail 
to a whole bunch of places. Um, not as much in the United States. And, and in a way, that's actually happening with airlines here too. Um, you see airlines dropping service from cities. And if you're in one of those cities, it means it's a lot harder to get somewhere else. And it's a lot harder for tourists or friends or family to get to you. Um, and so those are also part of the kind of miseries of flying. Like, do we really even have access to get to places we want to go? Um, so, so I think those are questions that are you know, part of these policy questions for what kind of air travel system do we want as a society? And how can we get there? We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway, not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go! To learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten-path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why. We're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Now, back to the show. You just kind of can go through the motions and take for granted, well, this is just the way it is, right? And I love that you're tackling this in a way that's just like, well, no, this could be better. One of the quotes from the book, you said, miserable air travel is the perfect symbol of the type of unregulated capitalism that America has unleashed. Why do you see it that way? So we, we make choices as a country. And the, the, the key point of the book is that the problems we have in the airline industry are a function of policy choices. Um, and in a democracy, we get to make those choices. We make them through our elected representatives, but we pick people and they represent the will of the people. And sure, there's a lot of problems with all democratic systems and so on, but it's a pretty good system. And it's basically responsive in a lot of ways. And this is a place where we made big choices. And those choices in the 1930s 
were really to have a system, you could think of it as an era that was the stable system era. And, you know, the idea was we want stable, reliable service. You know, as, as you said, looking at the kind of images of how many routes there were in the 1930s and how many in 2023, you know, they wanted a system when airlines was a pretty young industry in the 30s that would grow, that would have airlines that weren't going bankrupt, that didn't need subsidies, that didn't need bailouts, that could fly to more places. And so they regulators allocated routes to airlines. They set prices. Uh, they treated airlines like utilities. And it was a period of regulated competition. It was stable. It was reliable. Um, it was kind of boring, honestly. Uh, and, and then we made this policy choice in the 70s. And, and the, the advocates of deregulation said, you know, this system's a cartel and market competition would be a lot better. And they said, you know, imagine if you could have 200 efficient airlines with cheaper prices, with no downsides, really. Um, and that was the pitch. All we need to do is just let airlines fly wherever they want, whenever they want, and charge whatever they want. But what ended up happening in the 80s was we didn't end up in the kind of dream world of deregulation. The, the airlines ended up in, in really what I think of as phase two, uh, a kind of hunger games, a, a cutthroat competition uh, period in which you know, these airlines were engaged in all kinds of anti-competitive uh, and bad behaviors. There were attempts to break the unions. They were pushing new entrants out by doing predatory kind of pricing. Um, there were dozens of bankruptcies and mergers, all kinds of chaos in the 80s. And, and eventually, over time, we settled into what I think of as phase three, which is a kind of monopoly capitalism, where you don't really have that much choice in most cases. You don't get good service. Really, you get bad service, bad prices. And, uh, you know, if you ever sit in coach for a long flight, you might end up with a bad back at the end. Um, and, and so when you look at the system now, we actually have less competition today than we had during the regulated period. The, the, the top four airlines in the United States have a higher market share than they had in 1977. You have more concentration at airports, which means more flight connections. It means if there's weather, you're delayed or canceled, and so is the rest of the country because all the flights go through that one, one big hub. Uh, and we have all these daily miseries where if you're an airline and you're trying to increase your revenues and cut your costs, um, you're going to have smaller seats and you're going to charge more for fees and you're going to make things a little more complicated uh, along the way. And so deregulation unleashed this system of market competition, but actually it didn't work. We didn't end up with 200 airlines. We didn't end up with uh, a system that's that's terrific in every possible way. We ended up with a bunch of bad things too. And you know, I think that's where what we need to think about is how do we put in some guardrails? How do we have a structure that accomplishes a lot more of the values that I think a lot of people who travel would like to have and that as a society would be great for us? Yeah, we're going to get into the some of the solutions there. I had a couple more questions about the the problem here. Kind of, I think you mentioned being in phase three here. Maybe it's phase three point one because of the pandemic. It's not like we don't love bringing up the pandemic here. You know, everyone wants to put put it behind them, but you can't not talk about it when it comes to the travel industry because. Well, I mean, I'll read a quote from the book. He said, with the pandemic in the rearview mirror, the verdict is in. American air travel is getting worse. We now have fewer flights to fewer places with less competition and higher prices and with overworked pilots, flight attendants, and employees. You know, it's still seeing the effects of this here in Norway. I fly SAS a lot back to the States. And I guess the word on the street, although this is this has not been researched by me, but it's just that, you know, they let a lot of people go. 
during the pandemic and then they weren't really able to hire them back or they chose not to maybe a combination of that. And therefore now it's a, you know, higher prices, less, less routes. And, and it's at the time of this recording, it doesn't seem to be going in the right direction. Uh, just one real world example, but can you talk about the impact of the pandemic on the airline industry and the phase after that, that we're in now? Yeah, you know, one of the really um, interesting things about the the pandemic experience is, is in a way, how predictable it was. Uh, there were actually people during the deregulatory period who said, you know, what's going to happen in deregulation if you just have markets is there's going to be a big crisis at some point, and you're going to have a lot less demand. Airlines are going to have to put ground planes. They're going to fire people. They're going to, you know, furlough people. And then when you try to restart again, you're going to have a real problem because you're not going to have the staff, you're not going to have the planes, you're not going to have the trained people with the right kind of skill set to be able to run a horrible airline system um, when demand pops back up again. And that's exactly what happened. We had these highly profitable airlines in the United States, at least making you know, tons of money hand over fist. You know, one, one airline executive even said that he thought they would never lose money again, um, that they were always going to be profitable uh, before, before the pandemic. And then once travel grounds to a halt, you know, we go through this period where there's a real crisis and there's a worry that if the airlines start, you know, laying people off and, and everything to avoid going into bankruptcy, um, it's going to be a, 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 de- a devastating crisis for the workers, for example, um, who would lose their jobs. And, and that was a huge problem. So we had this big support program for, for airlines called the payroll support program, uh, which, which allowed them to keep their workers um, and create some continuity and sustainability. But, you know, there was an, it wasn't in the law. I mean, it sort of violates the spirit of the law, even though maybe not the text of it. But the airlines, you know, gave voluntary retirement offers to folks, um, which meant that when, again, we were ready to fly, there were actually too few people that we needed in the industry who were highly trained and able to do that. And so you end up with all these shortages of, of workers, uh, which means you have more delays, more cancellations, fewer flights. Uh, fewer flights also means higher prices. And and so we, we, we went through this period that we're still kind of working our way out of now. Um, and what I think it lays bare really is, you know, if this is a kind of basic infrastructure for our societies, like we need it for business travel and tourism, which, you know, is really the lifeline for tons of communities are really tourist dependent, need it, need air travel. Um, do we want a system that's so unreliable that when there's a crisis like this, we can't bounce back uh, or can't bounce back quickly enough? And, and to me, that's, that's one of the big lessons of air travel in the pandemic is we actually need to design a system that's more resilient so that when we have crises like this and, you know, same thing, you know, after 9-11, another example where air travel really, really went down quite significantly immediately and for a sustained period of time afterwards you know, these things are going to happen where we're going to have these crises. How do we have a system that can weather those um, so that we still have good service afterwards? Yeah. You have the chapter on airlines unleashed. You made the comparison, which I thought was a good one to the Wall Street banks that are quote unquote too big to fail. I think that's what really pisses people off to, to get right to the point is to hear something like that, where a, a, a one executive saying, I don't think we'll ever lose money again, you know, making all these profits. And then something happens. And now all of a sudden, there has to be government intervention to keep 
you know, society running in that way. And that's, that's a problem. And I think that's the core thing. You know, if they're, if they're too important to fail, then we should actually think about how to govern them as an industry that's important. And, you know, that's, that's basically what utility regulation was about. It was, these are kind of highly important public services. And so we need to treat them differently than, you know, a company that makes coffee mugs or office chairs where, you know, there would be lots of companies in that in that sector, and you could you could start a new one pretty easily if if it goes under. That's not really true. If you know your electric utility stops working, like that's a real crisis. You can't just start a new electric utility, and you can't just really start a new airline network that goes to a hundred cities. Um, that's a tough thing. You have said in the book, ignoring the critical role of airports play was one of the biggest errors of airline deregulation. And this is all stemming from the Airlines Deregulation Act of 1978, sort of the period you just you described. I don't really know what the role that airports play. I'm not sure if people listening do. I'm just, I would love to hear you educate us a bit on that. Yeah. You know, when you travel, uh, you have to go through an airport, right? So you can't actually take a flight anywhere you want. You know, they got to have somewhere to land. They have to have somewhere to take off. Um, you get off at a gate. And one of the challenges with that is that airports then are a little bit of a bottleneck for the industry. It makes it hard to have real competition anywhere and everywhere uh, because you need airports. And, and they actually have to all be coordinated. And you know, when we talk about air traffic controllers, you, know, you don't want uh, airplanes you know, crashing into each other in, in the air. Um, and so you have to coordinate where's everyone flying, how high are they flying, who's taking off when, who's landing when. And, you know, we sometimes have these near misses, which are, which are really scary. But, but there was a time when airlines did crash in the air, uh, run into each other because we didn't have a good safety and air traffic control system. Um, and so we've made a lot of improvements in that. And, and you need this concentration. You need airports and you need them to all be coordinated uh, to, to, to address problems like that. You know, what's happened, though, is we've moved from a period where we had a lot of airports that had a fair amount of uh, airlines going to them, uh, which was called a point-to-point system, where, where you'd fly nonstop from one city to another, kind of direct flight, uh, to a hub-and-spoke system, uh, where you connect through these giant airports like Atlanta or Dallas or Detroit or Charlotte, um, and then you can go to somewhere else. Um, but you know, in those hubs, uh, lots of you know cities connect into that one place. And for an airline, this is very efficient. It means they don't have to run as many flights directly point to point to every different city. They can just run every city to uh, to Atlanta and then out to every other city. And you know, if you're in a small city, this is actually pretty good too because you might not get service to a hundred cities with nonstop flights. You might get, but but getting to Atlanta, you have access to a thousand cities all at once. Um, and so, so there's some benefits to this, uh, but it also has some big downsides. You know, one of the things that we found in, 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 in the research is that when you have concentration of an airline at a hub, uh, and what they call this is a fortress hub, when there's a big airline that has a super dominant in one, one city, uh, you actually get higher prices. And the reason is there's no competition. Um, so there's nothing to discipline them if you're flying to or from that city from raising the prices, because you might have 70 you know, percent or more of the flights going in and out of that airport. Uh, it's also a real problem for uh, fragility of our system as a whole. So, you know, if you imagine if you're if you have you know most of your flights going through one airport and there's a big storm or a lot of high winds, 
it doesn't just harm that airport or that region. It's actually flights throughout the entire country because you've built your network around that airport being the real uh, the, the real hub for all of your activity. Um, so you can have these kind of cascading cancellations and delays. Even if there's no weather problems in New England, you might have it because there's bad weather in Dallas. Um, and and similar and, and the last problem that, that I think is a real issue with with airport concentration that's happened over time is it's really bad for geographic equality and for economic growth. And so so you know I'll I'll, I'll just ask you know for for everyone listening out there think about uh, here's the question for you you know Toledo Ohio a city about two hundred fifty thousand people or so you know how many of the big four airlines Delta United American Southwest uh, do you think fly to Toledo? You know, is it, is it one, is it two, is it three, is it four? The answer is uh, zero. There's zero oh. airlines that fly to Toledo, Ohio now. I was going to guess at least one. <laughs> and, and of the big four, none of them. Um, and, and part of that is, you know, if you're in a system where these kind of massive hub efficiencies are, are useful, uh, you want to abandon some places where you're not getting as much traffic. And so... You know, we see this concentration in a lot of places. You know, in, in 1977, Delta had 21% of Detroit Airport, and it was the top airline in Detroit. Now it's got more than 70% of, of the flights in D- Detroit Airport. That's a huge deal, and it means there's a lot of other cities that used to have a lot of service going to them, uh, used to be sort of mini hubs, as we would think about them now, not as big as like a Delta uh, in, in Atlanta now, um, but, but they were still hubs. And if you lose that hub, you know, that's a lot of jobs, a lot of businesses, it's a lot of tourism, it's conferences and conventions for business people. Um, it's all kinds of economic uh, activity that, that disappear. And so I think that's another reason we should be worried about these shifts in, in airports. And, you know, under a regulated system, what they said was, we want to have access to a lot of places. So we're not going to let anyone become too dominant in one place, because that would be a concentration problem and a monopoly problem. Um, and we also want economic growth in a lot of cities in the country, not just a few. And so we should distribute the airlines and, and routes to a lot of places so that there's access to transportation, you know, everywhere. So you have the, let's say, industry economic issues, bankruptcies, bailouts, overworked employees, some of the things we mentioned. Then you have the issues that affect the everyday traveler, delays, cancellations, lost luggage, cut down routes, so on. It, it seems that we need to find the common ground that works for everybody here. <laughs> And so you kind of laid out this three-point plan, I guess, three principles for fixing flying. I know you go in-depth on this in the book, but I was wondering if you could share that three-point plan and why you think it'll work. And I guess along those lines, I don't want to ask a multi-tiered question here, but uh, perhaps you could share some of the things that are working right now that might carry over into this plan. Yeah, so... To me, I, I think we should start with big principles um, and really think about the structural you know, basics of how we design an airline system. And so my, my three principles are first, no more flyover country. You know, we, we shouldn't have a system where airlines are able to just abandon pretty major cities um, and make it really hard for travelers. And, and that's all the reasons I just talked about, things like economic growth, access to, to transportation, connection to other places, whether that's for family or for friends or business people, you know, that's really valuable, I think, as a society. And I think we should, we should want a system that means people can get to a lot of different places. 
The second principle is no bailouts, no bankruptcies. Yeah. And, and this is a this is a pro <laughs> business principle, actually. I, I want a stable, reliable, profitable airline industry and not one that's subject to kind of boom and bust cycles, right? So, and that's, I think, good for airlines and it's good for taxpayers because the other challenge here is, you know, if we have the system, you know, like in banking, you know, the CEOs, the, the top executives, the shareholders make tons of money in the good years. And then in the bad years, the taxpayers pay for the, the bailouts. That doesn't make much sense. Um, so let's have a system that's stable all the time. Uh, and that's the second principle. Um, and then the third one is, you know, if we're going to have that, we need to make sure it's not abusive. And so we need to have fair and transparent pricing for all of us. And that's got to be a simpler system than we have now that's easier, that's more reliable, and that, and that does a better job. And I think if we do all three of these things, if we, if we have systems that achieve these, and, and there are ways that I talk about in the book to, to get there, um, what we'll actually end up with is uh, a system that solves a lot of our other problems in the travel world, in the, in the airline world as well. And so that's the, that, I think, is the real benefit. If we can solve some of these big things, it'll cascade through and solve a lot of the smaller problems too. Let me start with climate change because should, should flights be cheap? Should they be more expensive so people aren't flying as much? How does the solution play into uh, climate change? This is a really great question because you know airlines, as 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 you know, are, are a huge contributor to carbon emissions. They use a lot of fossil fuels, um, and if you're interested in solving this problem, you know one way you could talk about it is exa- is exactly what what you said is maybe we shouldn't fly as much. Um, and I think the way to think about that question is you know what's our overall package of a transportation strategy or transportation policy, and you know if you're in Europe. Maybe you fly some, but if you've got high-speed rail going from one city to another, as, as, as you said, Jason, you, you might prefer to take the, the train from one city to another, and that could be a way to, to have a beneficial um, carbon impact. Uh, you know, in, in the United States, I think one of the challenges we have is really thinking about what an integrated transportation policy looks like that is focused in the climate direction. I think that's a place where we need more, more attention. Um, but the second way we could think about this is how do we get an airline system that is, you know, more technologically set up to not be so focused on fossil fuels? Um, and I think, you know, that's the thing I mentioned in the book. You know, we could have a air innovation fund um, that in the profitable years airlines pay pay into to try to really focus a lot more on research and development about sustainable aviation fuels, which are already something that's that's in, uh, that are in the works or, you know, electric uh, planes, which are something that people have talked about and are working on. And, you know, we should be trying a lot of different solutions um, to see what we can do so that hopefully in the future, we have a more uh, climate friendly airline industry as well, uh, because it is a really convenient and quick way to travel. And in some cases, uh, we'll still be the fastest and we'll still want to do it. And so I think we need to, you know, think, think, think big in, in multiple directions to try to address this issue. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press. But I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago. And immediately, I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress 
is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour-over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years, I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks. So they also make an exceptional gift. Thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever Zero to Travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people, on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me. Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Now, back to the show. It's interesting when you were talking, it reminded me of a policy that I read about, I think it was in France about a year ago or so. I don't know if this is still enacted, but they had actually banned flights under a certain period of time like if the flight was like an hour or less again again don't quote me because like I, I don't have the research in front of me but they actually eliminated those flights for climate reasons because they figured well okay if it's if it's within x amount of hours for a train and a train can take you there then we're not going to allow flights to fly in order to you know help with climate change and so i'm not saying that was the perfect solution i don't know the u.s is a totally different place it's it's spread out but it's an example of policy change that can make a positive contribution to climate change or at least you know the idea behind it in in practical terms (laughs) a lot of these things you you don't know how they're going to exactly play out and they all have pros and cons right i mean you're i don't think you're saying that these three principles are a magical solution i think you're saying it's as a starting point for reform yeah i i think um there's no magical solutions in, in policy. Every set of policies have trade-offs. So, as you said, there's always pros, there's always cons. And the question is, which balance of pros and cons do we want? And can we have a few more pros and a few fewer cons? And if we can do that, that's that's terrific. And um, and so, you know, my hope is that these policies are ones that will move us in a direction that'll be a step a step better. Um, and, and, and we'll really learn from the positives and negatives of, of our history of trying to deal with these problems. You recently authored a, a study, an anti-monopoly approach to governing artificial intelligence. So you've done a deep dive on AI. I'm wondering after writing this book and diving into artificial intelligence from, from this perspective, looking at the solution you've come up with here, how, how do you think things are going to play out with AI in terms of the airline industry and the travel industry and do you see problems with where it could go and the solution you presented in the book? Yeah, so I think one of the challenges for 
passengers. Um, if you're buying airplane tickets, you know things have really changed in you know the last three, four more decades. Um, as I mentioned, in, in the 30s to the 70s, in the kind of stable system era of, of regulating airlines as a utility, um, there was a government agency saying, hey, you have to have just and reasonable prices, and we're actually going to set the prices so that if you're flying longer distances, you're charged more. If you're flying shorter distances, you're charged less. And it's not really about how much volume there is, because we want smaller places to, to be able to have access that's affordable too. Um, you could think of it sort of like a subway or taking a train, right? It's the same price uh, whenever you buy the ticket. Um, we've, we've actually moved to a different system now of dynamic pricing, where the prices for tickets change all the time. And they could change on Tuesday versus Saturday. They change three weeks in advance versus the day before. I mean, you, you, you know this and talk about it uh, on the website and, um, and here in the, on the podcast. And, and I think one thing that we could imagine happening increasingly with AI over time is even sort of personalized pricing. Uh, where there's so much data available on you as an individual, uh, when you buy tickets, uh, where you're thinking about going, how much you're willing to pay. Uh, and you could have a system where the price is actually just tailored to you. And, and I think that's really problematic because it, you know, again, it means that people are all going to be paying different prices for what is really a utility like service, um, where some people are going to pay a lot more, some people will pay a little bit less. Uh, and I'm not sure that's the kind of system we should want as a society where the airlines can, you know, because they have so much data about you, extract more money out of you, uh, instead of saying, hey, actually, we're going to have a consistent set of prices. You want to fly from, you know, New York to, to Washington. Uh, here's just what it costs. Everybody pays the same thing. That's the price. Um, and we could imagine a world like that where it's kind of fair, transparent, uniform, um, I, I think that would be a way to guard against what I, what I see as a potential real downside uh, in the future. Um, you know, another another downside that I think is potentially worrying, and, and there's some people who think this kind of thing already happens now, is just are we going to see, you know, these kind of automated systems designing pricing that will then either, you know, be, be basically learn that what they should do is collude with the other airlines. And, you know, some people say this is already a problem in, in airlines and other places. You know, you wonder why is the price on these three different airlines like within a penny of each other or within a dollar? And that could be one airline changed its price and the others followed. But if all of that's done by computers, what the computers might say is actually our best strategy is if we coordinate the price with everyone else and just keep raising it. Um, and, and that could be a real problem too. And so I think we need to think about competition and pricing you know, in multiple different ways. And, and that'll be different if we have these sort of black box AI machines thinking about, you know, what, what's the best way for the airline to make the most money. Yeah. I think we've all been that we've been the person in the seat that has gotten a really good deal on a ticket sitting next to the person that may not have and thinking, Oh, I, you know, here I am. I got on this, you know, I use my frequent flyer miles. I'm here for 50 bucks flying overseas. I mean, I've done that. It's, it's an awesome feeling, right? To pay five bucks to fly, across the ocean. But then you've also been on the other side where some something happens or there's a family emergency, you got to buy a ticket and it's the last minute and you pay so much and the person pay, sitting next to you might have paid 200 bucks and you've paid 800, you know? It's not a good feeling. <laughs> exactly. And 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 we don't have to feel that way. We don't, we don't have to have that as part of our experience. 
And, you know, I, I think your example also is a really great one of, you know, people have emergencies, family emergencies at the last minute. You know, your last minute ticket buyers aren't just business travelers. Yeah. They're also people who've had a death in the family, uh, someone with a health scare, you know, something where they really need to be there for people. And in those situations, you're paying a lot for your, your last minute flight. And, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. What is your biggest concern with AI? This can be off travel, just anything. So, you know, I think my biggest concern about AI um, at, at the moment, and it's maybe one that people aren't as focused on, and that's why I'm concerned about it, is that what we're seeing in the industry is consolidation and vertical integration. And, and that's just a fancy economisty kind of way of saying companies are buying up all the different pieces of the AI sector that are needed to make the applications work. So if you're, if you're thinking about an AI application, like if you've gone on ChatGPT, you know, that works because there's a model which is called, which is run by OpenAI. That's the model company. And, and you can't run a model without operating in the cloud because you need a ton of computing power to make the model work to do all the calculations, to do the automation that you're doing and seeing in the AI. And so there's a cloud company underneath that. And there's three big cloud companies. It's Google, it's Microsoft, and it's Amazon. Um, and you know, all of those companies are also either working on their own foundation models or partnering with, with firms and investing in them. And they're also doing their own applications. And so I think what, I, what worries me is what we might end up with is a kind of system that honestly is not that different from airlines <laughs> or from a lot of other sectors that we see where you've got just a couple of big companies, everything is run through them. You don't really have much choice. You can't really switch. Um, and we're stuck with the things that they come up with. And, and part of the worry there is that could become abusive. Um, it's that, you know, we might get less innovation, uh, and, and innovation can be bad, but it can also be good, right? You could imagine having, you know, medical AI, uh, programs that help diagnose diseases. Uh, but if all the data is private and all owned by one company, and they don't really have an incentive to do that much innovation and they can charge higher prices. And that would be a real problem and a real downside for society. And so I think we need to think about the concentration that is likely to come in this space just because it's, you know, it's like it's like airlines in a way or like like the electric utility. You can't really start your own cloud computing company and compete with Amazon because it's just too expensive to to do that. It's a really, really high cost endeavor. And so that means similarly with the foundation models, it's really expensive to train one of these things. Um, so I don't think in the future we're going to see you know 10,000 foundation models. I think we're going to see a relatively small number. Uh, and there'll be a lot of innovation in other parts of the of the industry, but but the real concentration in those places worries me. Do you have to look around closely when you go into some of these settings and the political settings? I mean, yeah, are there some people that are like, uh, you know, I'm not sure. <laughs> I imagine these some of these uh, CEOs, some of these bigger companies, you're not making any friends over there. <laughs> yeah, I, I suspect that's probably right. But but you know, my, my <laughs> I think that's probably right on some level. But you know, my view about this is, you know, you got to start with the the research and the evidence. And you know, um, I do my best in in all the work that I do to try to read through it uh, to be. Uh, skeptical, but fair, and, you know, try to figure out what's really going on. And, you know, as I think of it, that I don't have a, a stake in this, I'm not, you know, running one of these companies or something. So, 
you know, to me, it's what's the best way we could do this for society. And of course, you know, everyone's going to have slightly different goals, right? You know, you, you might care a little less about making sure small cities have air, tra- air service than, than I do, or maybe you care a little bit more. And that'll, of course, change your policy view on it. But, you know, I think if we try to have a, a conversation about what our values are and, you know, what the different options are, um, that, that's where we should start. And that's what I try to do. And, you know, if, if, if the policy says we should go one way, I try to let that be, you know, led by the evidence if, as much as possible. I love it. I, I know on the Foreign Policy for America website, it describes your work at the nexus of ideas, politics, and public policy, which is all of the things. It's the trifecta you need to make real change, <laughs> right? It's just excites me to know that you're out there looking at these big picture problems and, and trying to solve them with policy. And I mean, you've been a longtime advisor to Senator Elizabeth Warren. She ran for president of the USA in 2020. And I was just wondering, what is it like behind the scenes of a presidential campaign? I've never talked to anybody who's been that close to a presidential campaign. I don't know how freely you can speak. I mean, it's just the Zero to Travel podcast here. So, you know, feel free to, to share it all. <laughs> give, give out all the, all the scoops, right? All the scoops right now. Um, all, all the secrets. Well, what was that time in you, your life like for you? And that, that what was that experience like? Yeah, I'll say it is... Um, it's really like nothing else and that, that I've ever done before. And, and, you know, I'd worked on her Senate campaign, uh, some years earlier. And so I'd had some campaign experience, but presidential is just totally different in the scale, in the speed, in the excitement. Um, I, I would say, you know, probably the most surprising things about a campaign, uh, are, are first that, you know, in, a very short period of time, you know, presidential campaign in, in the United States will go, let's call it at most about two years, right? It starts uh, after the midterm elections two years before and runs into the kind of presidential election year. So in, in that case, you know, I think the earliest declaring folks were declaring end of 2018, beginning of 2019, and it, and the election was in, in November of 2020. So you know, you've got 18 months to two years. And in that time, you're going to create a startup organization, hire hundreds and hundreds of people, spend millions and millions of dollars, build an apparatus in multiple states with dozens of people working for you and thousands and thousands of volunteers, and then the whole thing's going to get shut down. And it's very rare that you have something like that as a kind of organizational matter. And so, you know, there's all this new influx of, of people and talent. And, and so organizationally, I think that's, that's really interesting. Um, as, as a kind of policy person, what's exciting about a presidential campaign in, in the United States is, you know, when you have these open primaries, it's, it's really a moment for there to be real conversation about what the future should look like. And in, in the, in the 2019, 20 time period, you know, I think that was a real part of the the presidential primary was lots of people putting out their ideas of the the kind of imagination that we that we started talking about, which is how would we want to see the world work and what are our plans for how we get there, and having a discussion about that. Um, and I think that's a really creative place for a, a policy interested person because it's a it's a time to say, here's some stuff that we're not doing yet. Have a lot of people focus on it, think about it, engage with it. And really build the momentum so that if you win, um, or even if you don't win, those ideas are in the world and can actually move forward and get implemented. Um, 
and then I'll just give you the last thing, which is, you know, and, and this is maybe the most, uh, I think to me, the most, the, the, the most emotionally compelling thing about a campaign is if you're out there and, and this is true of, you know, city council race or, or a Senate campaign or a presidential campaign. Um, I think when you meet people and just hear people's stories and one thing about campaigns is you don't hear two or three stories, you hear hundreds of stories about what people are dealing with in their daily lives, what their hopes are and dreams and worries and anxieties. And I think you get um, a real uh, kind of emotional connection and feel empathy, sympathy um, for, for so many people and the things that they're facing. And, you know, to me, that's really at the heart of what propels me to do work in, in policy and in politics is, you know, helping people. And I think in a campaign, if, if you're out talking to folks, you really see that in a way uh, that makes it real um, that you don't when you're, when you're, you know, diving into the history of airline regulation in the 1940s. Um, that, that's, that, that can sometimes feel pretty disconnected, but, but the campaign work, uh, you know, at least for me, really, really helps motivate some of that because of the connection to people. Is there a story that you heard that just sticks with you that comes up uh, for you personally often in your thoughts or, you know, um, one that, that comes up for me from, uh, you know, it's actually from the the Senate campaign a a long time earlier, but, but we were out somewhere and, um, you know, met a person who had, who had come out to see, uh, to, to a campaign event and, you know, carb had, was, was in the shop or broken down and, you know, walked like two miles to get there and, you know, the weather wasn't great and, but just so much wanted to be part of the campaign because saw this as the way that we were going to make change in the country. And, um, you know, that was the, the kind of amount of sacrifice in your own daily life when you have like jobs and kids and all these other things going on, but, you know, feel like it's really important to be part of something. And and I think that's really democracy at work, people really willing to get out there and uh, fight for what they what they need by organizing, by voting, by participating in the process. Um, and I think that's a really important part of part of our system. I know this isn't a political podcast, but since we have an expert on, on policy, we got to talk about it a little bit, right? What do you think needs to change in American politics for, all right, like I know this is a subjective opinion that some things are messed up, but man, it's, it's kind of messed up, man. Let's be honest. <laughs> I think, I mean, I have my own opinions, my own un, uneducated, completely uninformed <laughs> opinions about campaign finance. And I think, there needs to be campaign finance reform. And I think term limits are a no brainer. I don't think there should be a thing as a career politician or somebody who gets appointed for life. That sounds ridiculous to me, but you know, those are two systemic things that I, I lock into as a, as just a a citizen, what needs to be done? Yeah. So it's a great question. And, and we'll, we'll circle back to term limits because I have a slightly different view on that one. I can, I can explain why, but, um, but, but I think you're basically right. You know, there's political structures and economic structures and social structures, and these things are all interrelated. And so I think one thing, if you're going to have a you know, robust, thriving, sustainable democracy is you really need to have 
an economic democracy and social solidarity and a political democracy. And and, and in a lot of places where those things are weak or unraveling, um, you have these kind of real pressures on the democratic system. And so I'll explain why in each case. You know, if in an economic context, if you have severe economic inequality, it leads to exactly what you were saying with campaign finance. That's that's kind of a symptom of the of the real problem where some people are really economically powerful and others are not. And it means you can buy your politicians. But it's not just campaign finance in the elections. It means you can hire a dozen lobbyists to go to Congress and help navigate the process and get the bill to say what you want. Well, you know, I don't know any ordinary person who has a lobbyist. Like you don't have one for yourself. But if you're a big company, if you're a super you know wealthy person, you could actually do that. And th- and that's a different thing than everyone else. And so who's getting represented are the people who have the lobbyists, not just. And that's about wealth and it's about inequality and and who has power. And so in economic democracy, that means things like robust antitrust rules and regulation and uh, and and you know, how we think about taxes and lots of other things to kind of build a strong middle class. Um, that's part of the story of, of having a successful democracy. You know, we need to have some amount of social solidarity that we're all in this project together. And that's a harder thing to deal, think about. It's kind of cultural and changes over time. Um, and then the third is, as, as you said, you know, we need to have rules that are actually responsive to the people. And in a lot of places, we don't fully have that either because a lot of the systems we have aren't meant to be representative exactly. So you've got, you know, some of these are constitutional in the United States. You've got two senators from a very low population state like Wyoming and two senators from California, a really high population state. And so they have equal power in the Senate, these two states, but they don't represent people in the same way. We have a House of Representatives, it's 435 people. uh, But um, hasn't gotten bigger as the country's population has gotten bigger. And so the districts get bigger in size, which means people a little bit more removed from their constituents. Uh, there, there are dozens of rules like this that we could talk about. And I think we could have a system that's more responsive to the public that would change some of these rules. Um, the one where, where I, I have a little disagreement around on, on, on term limits is, I think unless you have really, really, really long term limits, like decades and decades long, for, for members of Congress, one of the real challenges about term limits is I think it's likely to lead to just more lobbyist power and capture from uh, companies or interest groups or or anyone else who have um, who have the ability to hire lobbyists. And, and the reason why is what members of Congress are able to do if they're there for more than you know two, four, six years is actually learn and build expertise. You know, if you're if you're a member of Congress and you and you get elected and say you'd been a uh, owned a car dealership or were a doctor or were a lawyer or a, a small business person, um, you probably don't know a lot about pharmaceutical drug regulation or how to deal with the taxation of private equity firms or how to think about um, you know governing the airlines. Uh, honestly, and you have to learn about all that stuff in order to be able to pass the laws. And I think one of the challenges is you lose a lot of expertise that would get built if after four years, let's say, you kicked everybody out and then you brought new people in. They would have to build that expertise from scratch. And I think one of the challenges there is you end up with them needing to rely on someone else who's not going to be elected and is likely to be lobbyists who have a skin in the game and, and just want things that, that support their own interests. And so to me, I think we could solve this problem in other ways. Um, 
like having you know larger, more professional staffs, like you know paying the staffs more, so you have they could have some more continuity, like dealing with campaign finance reform. Uh, all of those things, I think, would help address some of the problems. But you know, I worry a little bit with with short term limits. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. That that is the downside is that not having the time to build, or one of the downsides, to build the expertise. But also that expertise can be utilized in a negative way, right? Like you can become an expert at manipulating the system, or you know, leveraging certain relationships because you know you're going to get what you want, or maybe becoming an expert at how to compromise in the wrong ways. You know, I mean, that's right. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you see a lot of people who've been around for a long time and. Um, you know, maybe aren't as innovative in their thinking or aren't willing to consider new ideas, like you said, compromise in the wrong ways. And and that's a place though where, you know, having more competition in our election system could help, where you've got more candidates, more competitive primaries or general elections, um, you know, gerrymandering as like a way that, you know, basically people can draw these rigged districts where they know they're going to win and they're never going to face competition. And you'll see these things that are sort of look like a snake going across the entire state from one place to another. Um, and, 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 you know, we could change those things too. And that, and that would help address some of the other things as well in, in the process. So to me, I think we can imagine a whole package of things that would, you know, make it um, easier to have a more responsive system. And, and the last thing I'll say about this is, you know, we should also just make it easier to be a democracy. And, you know, it, it could be easy to vote instead of hard to vote. Um, and that would be great. You know, we should make that easier for everyone. And we can do that in a way that's safe and secure uh, at the same time. But, but you know, you want a process where you don't have to wait in long lines um, where things move smoothly. Uh, and I think that's a good thing just for, for society to have this be like a really great experience to, to actually exercise your democratic rights and, and vote. Some of the things you mentioned, I was just thinking from your perspective as somebody who's trying to enact policy, it must be so frustrating sometimes to work within these systems. What is the most frustrating part about the work you do? You know, I, I think the most, I'd probably say the most frustrating thing, um, and you have to learn to come to terms with it, is just that change takes a long time. And it's about persuading people. And if you have a new idea, especially, um, you know, some of the things I talk about in the book, for example, are just new ideas for how we could think about this. And, you know, that's a multi-year process to get a new idea, even on the table as something people think about, let alone the place where it becomes the kind of conventional wisdom where everyone says, oh, yeah, of course, we should do that. And then when there's, you know, enough of a crisis or a political will or something that there's a moment where people are ready to pass the thing and get it through. And so, you know, to, to me, that's that might be the hardest part is sort of coming to terms with the fact that, you know, we all want change immediately. Like we're all in a kind of get what we want. Like you can ask Amazon to deliver your thing right away. You can get delivery of your, your, your food uh, right now. Um, and, and we're in a society where we want things to happen immediately, but actually political change doesn't happen that way. It, it takes a long time usually for things to make their way through and that, that to me is the toughest thing, but it, but it's true about how it works. But for something like climate change, we don't have a long time. Well, I think in a lot of the places, you know, climate's a good example. We don't have a long time and, and that's what makes it, it hard. And I think, you know, part of what 
I think about some of the time is how do you shrink the time between coming up with the ideas and getting things implemented? Um, and there's a lot of ways to do that. One of the biggest is getting people involved and getting them pushing in the right direction. And, you know, so for me, uh, you know, if you think about airlines, if you think about you know, climate, um, you know, I'm writing this book and, and here talking with you and I'm going to talk to everyone I can about this in part because I think the more people we have who have an understanding that, hey, this is a problem, who care about it and who are willing to call their congressman and say, hey, I think you should do something about this. And here's this book, like you should read it and think about it. Um, that's good. That, that creates more momentum. It creates more pressure, it creates more awareness. And, and ultimately, that's how things change is you have to you know, shrink the distance between you know, one person having an idea to lots of people knowing there's a problem, lots of people thinking about solutions, lots of people pushing for them, and then lots of people in government recognizing that they have to do something and, and being able to look at what the solutions on the table are. You mentioned having to persuade somebody or you could say have them at least open up to your viewpoints. How do you how do you do that? What are some I'm um, gonna get some practical advice here. I think everybody is in the position at some point in their life, whether it's, you know, persuading somebody to give them a job or to at least consider certain parts of uh, whatever it is they're pitching for lack of a better term. I don't that's not the right term, but you know what I'm saying? They're they're presenting or they have an idea and they need to get people on board in some way, shape or form. What do you, what do you do? Do you have well, a methodology for that? Or do you just, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't. And I, you know, I think like anyone else, I think of myself as like a lifelong learner, you know, in this respect and, and figure that, um, I'm probably okay at, at some parts of this and could be a lot better. And, and, and I'm always excited to, to get better at it. You know, one, one thing though, that I find uh, helpful as a starting point is is you know recognizing everyone's different and they have different things that drive them and so if you can figure out well what does someone else care about what's the thing they're interested in and maybe there's a way that your thing connects up to to something they care about you know th that's often a good way to at least have an entry point into having a conversation um, finding something that that someone else cares about in their own in their own world. Um, similarly, you know, what's something that, that you can connect over? You know, I think a real personal connection between people is important, building trust. Um, and that's something that we don't have as, as much of these days in, in politics, certainly as, as probably would be helpful for, for getting things done. Um, but, but, but those are two, two ways that I think are, are things that we should be, you know, working more on and, and trying to see things from other people's perspective is the starting point for both. You know, if you want to know what someone else cares about, you've got to you got to ask them, you got to talk with them, you got to understand. Um, and if you're interested in 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 really finding commonality, it's the same story. You've got to listen and 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 understand where others are coming from. Something we've been talking about for a long time on the show here is remote work. Started with sort of digital nomad movement and working remotely and being able to do that, which is we've been talking about that for over a decade now. But then, of course with the pandemic for remote work as a movement exploded, companies were forced to do it. And then they realized, well, some of them realized, uh, Hey, this is a pretty cool way of doing business. We don't have all this overhead. We can, you know, do these meetings on zoom or whatever. Others, not so much. They want everybody back in the office. Some are doing hybrid models. I'm just wondering in the circles that you operate within in these political circles and these, uh, you know, policy, public policy and, and that sort of thing is, 
do people see remote work as a thing, as a movement? And we can go back to the airline example because you you mentioned the smaller cities getting getting them connected. And we know that rents in San Francisco and some of these larger major metropolises are sky high. People are going to places where it's more affordable because they can live there. And, and you could foresee or I could foresee a future where that, you know, maybe the population of Toledo doubles. I don't know if they have the infrastructure for that. Maybe that's a bad example, but you get what I mean. Getting away from some of the more expensive areas, going to some of the um, smaller, more affordable cities and running their businesses or working from there. Is that something that is being talked about? Or yeah, are we still so, on the fringes of that, do you think? Yeah, I think I think there's a real um, diversity of practices and views. And, and, you know, to go back to our our previous conversation in part, you know, I think the pandemic really, COVID really changed things for people because in that period where everyone was on video and people were all working from home, I think a lot of people realized, oh, this could actually work. Um, and we could be more flexible about work from home or remote work in in uh, in a lot of different settings. Um, but I think people have also recognized that there's a little bit of a, there are some downsides to that. You know, personal connection is really important. You know, you often miss the, at the end of a meeting, for example, someone does the quick pull aside and says, hey, I didn't want to say this in the meeting, but but here's the thing I'm really concerned about. And, you know, it feels much more formal to do that kind of thing on on a video call uh, than, than if you're doing it in person. And so, so there are some trade-offs um, here too. You know, like we talked about, every policy has, has trade-offs. And, but, but I think there's a sense that there's more of an opportunity for this. And I think in a lot of places, people are doing, you know, more remote work, work for a couple days in person, a couple days not. Um, or, or altogether remote. So, so I, I'm not sure where it's going to end up, but uh, I think there's a real, um, I think there's a real shift that's taken place in, in at least you know, interest and flexibility around this set of questions. What can an individual do? I mean, we'll mention the book again here, Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. So if you want to dive deeper on this topic, uh, I really enjoyed going through it and, and chatting with you about it today. I was just wondering, yeah, like as an individual traveler who might be listening to this and and it just seems like you can't make a difference right i mean maybe this is broader than just this specific problem with airlines and the airline industry but it's easy to feel like you can't make a difference and you can remind people that each individual does make a difference but what is the best way to make a difference as an individual in these realms of policy and yeah well well i, I would say the the biggest thing um you can do. And, and, and like I said, one of the most frustrating things about policy is it takes a long time, but it starts, you know, they say journey starts with a single step. And, and the single step here is get, get involved. And that could be as easy as call your elected official, write them a letter. It could be going to an event. It could be asking a question. Um, but the more you get active in these different ways and push people and say, hey, this is a thing that really matters. Um, they notice. They notice when people are coming up to them saying, "Hey, how come you're not doing anything about this?" Um, or here's a thing that happened to me a bunch of times, and like I can't get any resolution. Um, why aren't you fixing this problem? And 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 I think if you do that in the in the if you're if you're irritated about airlines, you know, get get a copy of the book, um, read read through it. It's a quick read. You can read it next time you're delayed for a couple hours. Um, and uh, and 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 then. You know, if you like what's in there, or even if you don't, call call your members of Congress, call um, you know other people in, in elected positions, and tell them you really want action on this. And that's how it starts. 
And I think the more people who do that, the more likely we are we are to get change because the people are actually in these jobs are actually much more responsive than than we often think. And and a lot does get done, even if it's not the really big picture stuff that, that makes all the front pages. Um, you know, just this year, for example, they're going to do a reauthorization of all the, the big airline authorities. Um, that's an opportunity for for lots of different kinds of changes to happen. And that's a place where if you're active, if you're involved, if you're asking questions, if you're pushing for them to do more, you know, there's a real chance that they'll actually do that in the next six months or year. If I gave you a magical policy wand, here it is. I'm waving it in front of you right now on this call. Uh, out of all the things you've studied, what's the one thing you would do that you would like to change within this hour? Well, you know, I think in the airline context, the the big change I would try to uh, impose is a kind of system around the geography of airlines. So really reducing the concentration at big hubs and creating a more dispersed airline system. So there's more cities that have more flights, um, not just small cities, but also mid-sized cities becoming kind of mid-sized hubs instead of uh, not being hubs at all. Um, Because I think that would have a really big impact on convenience, on resilience, on stability, on competition, uh, and on economic growth and um, vibrancy in a lot of places around the country. Is there a trip that had a big impact on on you personally, on your life? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I've had a lot of favorite trips. Uh, I, um, you know, what one that that was great for me was after uh, after working on one of these campaigns um, a long time ago. Uh, I actually went to to Norway to to Bergen uh, in in Norway. Um, and uh, and spent about a week there, and just had a really wonderful, wonderful time there. Um, and it was a great opportunity to reflect on, you know, my time in politics, reflect on, you know, what I wanted to do next. And that was really that was when I was starting out as an academic, and so uh, it was a it was a real moment of thinking, you know, what kind of academic do I want to be? Do I want to be a professor who? You know, what do I want to focus on and how do I want to think about navigating my interests in ideas and politics and policy? Um, and so I did some of that in the, in the coffee shops of, of Bergen. Uh, uh, and, and so that, that was a really great trip for that reason. Well, it's an, not the worst place to do some reflection, right? You got some great scenery. Oh, ama- World Heritage amazing City scenery, and- <laughs> just beautiful hiking, you know, great people um, went, kayaking in the fjords. I mean, it's just a wonderful, wonderful place. Awesome. Where are you off to next? Do you have any trips planned? Uh, I've got lots of little trips planned, um, as, as part of talking to about, about the book with people. And, Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully at the end of the year, we'll, we'll make uh, a slightly bigger trip, uh, to India. And so that's, that's on the list for, for what's coming up next. Do you get to India often or not as often as I'd like, but, um, but th- this will be the first trip in, in a while since, since well before the, the pandemic. So, you know, I think for me, like a lot of people probably still, uh, coming out of my post pandemic travel, um, to do longer, longer trips. Right on. Cool. Did we miss anything major here? I give you a, if you want to share anything here, kind of close this out. Uh, I, I think we hit on a lot of the great points. I, I would just say, you know, for, um, for, for anyone who's interested in, in really understanding some of the history of, of how we got to where we are, 
Um, you know, I, I encourage you to take, take a look at the book. It's got a lot of great stuff on uh, the history of airlines the, as an industry, the history of airline policy, um, and a lot of the changes that happened over time, including uh, some really surprising and shocking things that you'll, you'll find along the way. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time to come on and help us unpack this. And yeah, best of luck with the, with the book and everything else. And hopefully look forward to staying in touch. Thank you. There you have it. Special thanks to Ganesh Sitaraman for stopping by the show. Of course, we'll link up to the book and everything mentioned here today. And I wanted to close this one out with where it started. I thought that when Ganesh mentioned at the top of the episode this question of, well, why do we do things the way we do them? Why don't we do them a different way? Just that simple question, which is really at the heart of any policy reform, right? You're looking at something big and you're saying, why, why are we doing this this way? And what can we do differently? Why don't we do them differently? It just opens up a whole different line of thinking, right? You're already questioning something that you don't spend time perhaps questioning. And if we apply this question to our personal lives, as he mentioned at the top, I think that's, that's powerful, right? It's not just powerful in the world of policy and looking at systems and how we can iterate and improve on them, but it's a powerful thing to ask of ourselves in our personal life. Why do we do things the way we do them? Why don't we do them a different way? Or you could even say, what would it look like if we did them a different way? I don't know. I'm pondering that coming out of this. Like I think if I'm looking at myself as an individual, it's like, well, why am I doing you know, X, Y, or Z this way? Well, what would it look like if I did it differently? Why don't I do it differently? Maybe that opens up some new creative paths. Maybe it opens up some new paths in life. Who knows? I thought it was worth pointing out as we close this one out. I'm going to reach into the quote drawer in a minute to leave you with a random quote. First of all, I do want to remind you, if you haven't been to zerototravel.com slash newsletter, you can sign up for the weekly newsletter over there. It's free, and you can join the community off the podcast. Got some maybe trip plans in the works, some different things going on. You're not going to hear about it unless you're on the newsletter list. So go ahead and sign up if you haven't done so already. I want to thank you and everybody else who has taken the time, anytime at all, to listen to this show. Very much appreciated. I'll leave you with this quote I just pulled out of the drawer. Oh, this one's very appropriate for this episode. It's from Ming Dao Deng, who said, quote, every day passes whether you participate or not. There you have it. So we can get out and participate today. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Peace and love to you and yours. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality. 